Uh, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we're, we're going to spend a, a lot of time in the Gospels today. And we're just going to talk about Jesus and his life. And I'm in the middle of a series. This is a part, I guess, part three. Um, I might have put part two, but it's part three. Uh, of the unexpected Jesus. I want us to look at Jesus with fresh eyes. Maybe look at some past some misconceptions that we all have. Look past those misconceptions into what I feel like the Scripture reveals. Today I want to talk to you, the title of my message is Jesus the Unspectacular. Jesus the Unspectacular. And the Scripture's already been read today out of Matthew chapter 21, but let's read again for clarity. As Matthew 21 verse 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we've mentioned before that the word Hosanna means the Lord save us, save us, Lord. And I thought Penny did a, a great job describing the, the irony of the fact that the very people who praise the Lord in this, this story, in this account, five days later, were the very ones who crucified him also. This was a very dramatic event. If this was a movie, this would have been a climactic moment. It, it had a sense of foreshadowing. It had a, the dramatic irony. Uh, and here it was, the common people. The common folk kind of rose up, and they rose up, and they began to praise the Lord, and, and they were praising him with one expectation, but he was entering the city with a total separate intention. And, and what a strange scene that is, that, that sense of uh, conflict there, that they're, they're praising Jesus for who he is, that's true, but they're also praising him with expectation that he's going to do something very different than what he intended to do. He didn't come there to be the political king. He didn't come there to start an uprising. Jesus was entering the Jerusalem into the Jerusalem knowing that death was his fate by God. See, the cross was no accident. The cross was no afterthought. If you go back and study the Gospels, you'll see again and again, Jesus predicted his own death. Jesus was sovereign and in control. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. It's not like the the cross happened and God said, well, hey, Jesus is going to die. Let's, Let's come up with a plan of salvation. From before time began, Jesus, God had already established through Jesus how salvation was going to come through the Messiah, through the Son of God, through the sacrifice that he was going to make. So he enters into Jerusalem. He enters in 
with a goal. He enters in with a directive from God. He enters in knowing exactly what he's going to do, and yet the people were praising him with a different expectation. You see, people, you and I, are always looking for the spectacular. That's what we want. We don't want a Savior that rides in on a donkey. We want a Savior who rides in in chariots of fire. We want a Savior that rides in 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 the wealth of the world and the power of the world. We're people who are obsessed with the spectacular. You know, the whole idea of hero worship. I mean, we, we as people, as Americans, we don't have a king... And so we, we make kings and queens through pop culture. We, we, we have these heroes that we, ha- we decide we decide they're going to be our hero worship. And so it is, we think we want leaders with perfect appearances and flawless families. We want leaders who never appear weak, who never appear vulnerable, who never appear tired, leaders who never take time off, leaders who are always there to meet our needs. We want this uh, persona of a leader, this hero that we can look to Something that is spectacular. Something that is above us. Because when people seem way above us, it makes us feel better about ourselves. The truth is, is the media it directs who our heroes are. Media is always telling us, and, and, and we're victims of the media, and the media is, is uh, putting people before us and saying, this is a hero, this is not a hero. And, and they continue to throw people in our faces until that data overloads us and we we began to make heroes of people who shouldn't be heroes. We began to look up to people that we really should not be examples. They're not living lives of character, not living lives of integrity, but because they have charisma, because they have the appearance of this so-called perfect life without flaw, without any weakness, without any uh, financial constraints, they become our heroes. They become who we look to. And there's something about our sinfulness that makes us want to look for the spectacular and makes us want to look for the hero. That's exactly why the Jewish people, they had to have a king. They had to have a personality. They had to have uh, someone who they could follow. It wasn't enough that God was going to use his prophets. It wasn't enough that God was going to speak through a man or woman of God. They wanted someone tall, handsome, rich. They needed a hero. They needed someone spectacular. And that's what these people wanted Jesus to be. They wanted Jesus to cause a, a uprising. They wanted Jesus to come lead a military campaign. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. But Jesus didn't come to be the political king. He came to be our spiritual king. He didn't want to be the king over a territory, over a political system. Jesus wanted to be the king of our hearts. So he came in with a much different expectation. In my life, my heroes have changed quite a bit. I started off, you know, as a you know teenager and stuff, elementary teenager, all that. You can come see who my hero heroes were if you saw all these posters of athletes. You, know, you put all these posters of athletes around your room, and that's kind of who you worship. That's kind of what you do. A lot of young men do that. And, and, and you know, real quickly, real quickly, the as my career or, or my calling became apparent, my heroes changed from sports type people. Uh, to, to ministry type people. Earlier I'd mentioned that the media drives us and the media tries to determine who our heroes are. And do you think that the Christian media, do you think that, that they're immune from that? No way. No way. Christian media, they push people down our throats. 
They put them on magazine covers. They put them on billboards. They run commercials and all this type of stuff. So and so's ministry and that and that ministry. And over and over again, I see the cycle over and over again. Is we build up people, we build up ministries, we build up national figures, and many many of them fall because they become. Uh, it's hero worship is what it is. Because there's something within us, there's something within ourselves that we have to look to a personality other than God. We have to wrap our identity over personality and, and who someone is. And so in my life, I went from the, the uh, poster guys, you know, the basketball and football players in my wall, to I started looking at ministry, becoming obsessed with Christian authors and obsessed with... Uh, um, pastors, who's running this size of church? Who's running that size of church? Who is the coolest thing? Who's the latest thing going on? And you know, and and at one time I, I thought that you know ministry success was you know how many people are going to buy my book someday, or is my picture going to be on the billboard, or am I going to be on the cover of a magazine or on Christian TV? And now you know it's such a shallow goal, and it's really an anti-Jesus goal. No, and and no, I'm not saying that any person who has been involved in those. It's not them. I'm talking about me and my concept of that's a hero. Someone who's promoted by the Christian media. Someone who's spectacular. Can I tell you who my heroes are today? My hero is Dustin Bartholo, who came here last week, a young man who at age 20 had leukemia, and he overcame that, and now he's living in Bangladesh with his four kids. Taking Jesus, you know, it's a lot different to pastor in Hendersonville than it is in Bangladesh. He's my hero. My hero is Phil Zarns, who took his young family. He took him to Sweden. He's taken him to a place where less than 1% of people know Jesus. It's not the 40% we have here in Sumner County. That's my hero. My hero is Dick and Jennifer Brogdon, who their, three kid, their two kids have been born in a country that is Islamic, that they, have, they could literally lose their life if people find out where they are and what they're doing. That's my hero. And you know why? Because Jesus is our ultimate hero. And they're following in Jesus' life of self-sacrifice. And Jesus' life of looking beyond the temporary praise of man and looking at the uh, uh, deception of trying to be something spectacular and instead trying to be used of God. Used of God in humility. And that's what he did in Matthew 21. He entered among the praises of the people who had a different expectation of what his call was and who he was supposed to be. You see, the kind of Jesus we want is we want a Jesus who gets us a better job. We want a Jesus who promises a better vehicle. We want a Jesus who helps us win the game. We want a Jesus that helps us close the deal. We want a spectacular Jesus, a Jesus who gives us the wows and Jesus who gives us, who impresses us and impresses our temporary attention for something spectacular. And you know what? He can do those things and he wants to bless us, but that's not the type of Jesus we want to serve. We want to serve a Jesus that is real and a Jesus that is represented in the Gospels that we read today. If you're looking for Jesus as spectacular, you'll be disappointed. You'll be disappointed when you don't get that promotion. You'll be disappointed when you don't get that job. You'll be disappointed when your temporary needs aren't met. But if you begin to serve the Jesus I know, 
The Jesus who was humble. The Jesus who is eternal. The Jesus who is focused on not this life, but the life that is to come. The Jesus who's not focused on earthly wealth, but he's focused on heavenly wealth. The Jesus who cares more about eternity than he does your temporary circumstances. That type of Jesus will never disappoint you. That type of Jesus might not be spectacular to the world, but he's the type of Jesus that will bring you eternal life from this life on till evermore. You see, I wanted to make some observations from the scripture because I find from this is the first thing I want you to write down is that Jesus did not let the noise of the crowd silence the voice of God. That's why Jesus the unspectacular is someone we need to follow. That's why Jesus the unspectacular is someone we need to worship today. Because, you know, if it was you or I, we would follow the voice of the crowd. We would follow the noise. We would get caught up in the adulation. We'd get caught up in the temporary praise. But Jesus knew that he was on a mission, that God had called him to go to Jerusalem, but more than go to a city, to go all the way to the cross. He was going to the cross for you and me. He was going to his execution. He was going to his death. And the people were praising him, praising him with false expectations. But he did not listen and deceive himself from the voices of the crowd. He stayed, he stayed clearly, clearly focused on the call God had put on his life. You know, scripture that I have to read many times, and it's come in my spirit, is Galatians 1 and 10. You begin to feel all the pressures that there is. You know, everybody has expectations on 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 uh, on ministers, expecting them to do this, expecting them to do that, expecting them to produce this. You know, Galatians 1:10 says this. Paul asked this question: Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? If I, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1:10 said that. Am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, that if you always follow the crowd, if you always follow what everyone else says, if you're fascinated with the crowd and that keeps you from hearing the voice of God, then you have spiritually failed. It's not always what the crowd says, it's what God says. It's not always what the crowd wants, it's what God wants. And you have to be willing through maturity and through knowing the voice of God is to follow his voice. That means if every kid in your, if every child in your, every classmate in your child's class is participating in something and everybody's doing it, but you have a conviction and say, we're not going to be involved in that. Are you trying to win the approval of men or of God? See, this hits every level. I don't care if everyone in the office is compromising in this area. And you know if you don't compromise in that area, you're not going to get promoted. Are you trying to win the approval of men or the approval of God? Because if you don't know the voice of God in your life, then whatever the crowd wants, whatever the crowd is asking for, you'll produce for the crowd. You'll produce for them. The the fascinating thing is this, is that Jesus actually avoided the crowds. That's that's so hard for us. Jesus avoided the crowds to replace it with prayer. Jesus knew that prayer was necessary for him to produce a spiritual fruit people needed. If you look through the book of Mark, the book of Mark is fascinating. Over and over and over again, you'll see a pattern of Jesus withdrawing himself. It's an action-packed gospel. He heals people, he teaches, he does, and then he withdraws himself for prayer. Many times we are too 
prideful, too obsessed with the spectacular, too obsessed with who we are and the kind of energy and the kind of rush we get from uh, what we're producing to ever stop and go pray, to ever pause and go pray. Mark 4, 35, let's just look at a couple examples of this. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and 36. That day when evening came, he said to disciples, let us go over to the other side. And this phrase in in verse 36 is so interesting to me. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also boats with him. Go to Mark chapter 7, verse 17, or at least read it on the screen with me. It said, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. Most of Jesus' great teaching moments were away from the crowd. Jesus would stay up all night in prayer. He would separate himself so he could hear the voice of God. And he was not obsessed with the crowd. And he wasn't trying to be the spectacular because he knew exactly who he needed to be. He knew exactly what God had called him to be. He was focused on that. And he didn't listen to the crowd. He listened to what God said. So, you know, I I finally can say something to you today. I'm going to say something to you. Today, in in our church, this is probably the most chairs we've put out in, in a long time. I don't know what the count is today. I, just by judging, we have the potential to have one of our, of our biggest crowds ever. And so this is the only Sunday that I can say this. Numbers is not what it's about. It's not about that. It's not about numbers. See, I can never say that when, when uh, you, you know, if you're a preacher and if you say that, if you have a small crowd or, or a plateaued crowd or whatever, then you look defensive. You look defensive and you look like you're trying to judge. So I've been waiting for a Sunday where I thought we had the most people say it's not about numbers. This church is not about numbers. This church is not about a crowd because you can get a crowd and still be out of God's will. Still be out of his purpose. Now, one of the arguments I hear all the time, and it's an argument that I've made a lot. I've made this argument a lot until I really started uh, you know, breaking it down in my mind. You hear of uh, crazy churches and crazy people and crazy ministers or whatever, and people say, well, something must be working. Look at that crowd. Something must be working. Look at that crowd. As if that's the only thing we judge or the only thing that makes a man successful or a woman successful. Look at that crowd. I can tell you that if you have that standard, then Jesus would have been a failure to you. Look at me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus gave a very difficult teaching and he said, he's starting in verse 53, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That was a very difficult teaching, and there was a lot of ramifications to that. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my, my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Did we, go to, did we go to 66? Okay, let me, let me catch up with you guys because this is something that the Lord impressed me to share with you this morning. It wasn't in my, in my notes. Are we at 57, right? You hanging with me? Are you waiting on me? 57? Everybody on pause, the pause button? Which uh, reminds me that uh, um, uh, I was reading a story to uh, one of my, my baby, my four-year-old, and he had to go to the restroom. He said, Dad, put it on pause. I'll be right back. It's a different generation we're living in, isn't it? Picking up on on 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. 
And he said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now, verse 60 is the key part. I'm in verse 60. John chapter 6, verse 60. Now, listen up. If you get lost in all the flesh, blood, eating thing, listen to this part. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. 63. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Look at 66. I'm 66 now. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus went on and asked the tw- he turned to the twelve and said, you want to leave too? He said that in 67. The point I'm trying to make is this. If we always sit there and say, must be doing something wrong, right? They're growing. And they're not growing. They must be doing something wrong. You know, well, Jesus would have been judged by that too. Jesus must be doing something wrong. His numbers are down. Jesus isn't popular anymore. He's not spectacular. He's not the end thing. What's wrong? What's wrong with him? I tell you that there's nothing wrong with Jesus because he didn't listen to the noise of the crowd and he didn't listen to the uh, cry for the spectacular. He kept focus on his mission from God. And he is our hero. We look to him. Here's the second thing that I notice about Jesus, the unspectacular. That Jesus didn't take shortcuts. He endured the pain. He, he didn't try to shorten what God had called him to do. He didn't try to take a shortcut and, and uh, keep himself from what the Lord wanted. And, and let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. I told you we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels today. I want you to get a lot of Jesus this week. Go back to his temptation right before his ministry launch. And I think we're going to see out of the temptation of Jesus. We're going to see here that there was a huge temptation in Jesus to be spectacular. God had called him to come in humility, in obscurity, as I spoke to you last week, in irrelevancy. God called him to be irrelevant. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you that God called him to come and be silent. He was silent for 30 years. Jesus the silent. Jesus the irrelevant. Jesus, the unspectacular, that was where temptation was for him. The temptation to be spectacular to the world. Because if, you know, if God came back and, and in a spectacular fashion, everyone would have to believe. It would be undeniable. But he didn't. He came in a barn, a feeding trough for animals. To a teenage girl that wasn't even pregnant. He lived an obscure life. He lived in a village that wasn't respected among a tribe that wasn't at the top. He lived as a common man. He lived a life of silence for 30 years. He was then irrelevant to what some of the people, and the temptation to be spectacular, we see it clearly here in Mark chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. Excuse me, I'm in Malachi 4. Okay, time for an optometrist checkup here. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him. Can I just say that's the name of the devil right there, the tempter? He'll come to you. The tempter comes. 
Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can I just pause there for a second? And can I just say, Henry Nowen, uh, he suggested that was Jesus' temptation to be relevant. He was hungry. There were stones on the ground. Make the stones in the bread. Be relevant to us. Solve that social need. Solve that social problem. Be if Jesus, if you're relevant, everyone will follow you. The Jesus who always clears out every hospital bed and takes away sickness and takes away pain and takes away suffering, no one could deny him. That wasn't the plan of God. That's not the plan of God until the ages to come. So we go on and in verse 4, and he says again, Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Five, then the devil took him to the holy city. And here is the temptation to be spectacular. And they had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Now here's where the enemy really becomes subtle because he begins to use scripture to twist the plan of God. You know that, that Satan here quotes scripture. The tempter quotes scripture. And all the time, you know, people can twist scripture and, and make scripture to uh, cause it to say what they want it to say in order, in order to answer the temptations, answer them wrongly. So back, in, back here in 6, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, Satan put it out there to Jesus. He said, Jesus, I've taken you. You're at the highest point. Everybody can see you. And the word says that angels have to come, and the angels have to come and rescue you. So throw yourself down and be spectacular. And let's see those angels come and rescue you. He used the word of God. He used the truth of God. And he used the temptation for Jesus to be spectacular to try to deceive him into a shortcut. You see, the truth is this. The kingdoms of this world belong to God already. The enemy has temporary control over this world. And Jesus answered him in verse 7. It's written, don't put the Lord your God to test. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and its splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down or worship me. Jesus answered him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Satan, the tempter, took Jesus to the highest point and said, I'll give you the whole world. You know, Jesus already owned the, the whole world. And there's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The kingdoms of this world will submit to him. The kingdoms of this world belong to him. But God and his sovereign will has waited for that time to come because he wants more people to choose Christ. Yet Satan said, here's a shortcut. You worship me, you'll get all those kingdoms now. Truth is, he wasn't going to get the kingdoms eternally. He was only going to get them temporarily just for a short season. The point I'm trying to make is this, is that Jesus avoided the shortcut and he chose the pain. He avoided the shortcut and the shortcut to be spectacular, the shortcut to be well-known, the shortcut, the shortcut to have earthly acclaim and instant earthly fame. He chose the pain instead of the shortcut because he loves you and he loves me. And let's go to the garden with Jesus in Luke 22. Luke 22, and as we reflect during the week uh, on Good Friday, this is where we'll be in the Scripture passage. 
And we see the conflict, we see the pain in Jesus. Luke chapter 22, verse 39, starting in verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And on reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw away beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. I'm in verse 43 of Luke 22. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There it was. Jesus knew he could take a shortcut. Jesus knew that, that, um, that if he wanted to, he could stop this, but he said, God, not my will but your will be done. I'm choosing the pain. I'm choosing to go the distance. I'm going to finish my course. Jesus I, I, Jesus was praying to God, and he said, I'm not going to go for the spectacular fame of this world. I am going to focus in on what you've called me to do, and I'm going to finish what you've called me. I'm going to endure the pain instead of taking the shortcut. That's why the third thing I want you to write down, the last thing, is that why is Jesus the unspectacular Because instead of impressing temporarily, Jesus saved eternally. That's why he's the unspectacular. While the world was looking for a spectacular Jesus, Jesus humbled himself and he went to the cross and he went to a borrowed grave. And he, there in that grave, he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he came out of that grave alive and revealed himself to those who believed and revealed himself to 500 people. And from those 500 people, it spread and spread and spread until we're gathered here today in Hendersonville, Tennessee, in this beautiful building. Why? Because Jesus, he came not to meet the temporary needs of first century Jewish need, the Jewish need of first century uh, Judea. He came because he wanted to meet the eternal need of those who believed in that day and for those of us here in 2008, he knew that we would feel lost. He knew that we would feel abandoned. He, he knew that there was an emptiness within us. There's an emptiness within us that only he can feel, that only he can uh, fulfill within us. He knew that. And so instead of getting caught up in the spectacular scene as he entered Jerusalem with the palm branches, he went to the cross. He went to the borrowed grave. And today, he has resurrection power. I want you to turn.